Hey, Kelsey. Hey, Brooke. Want to tell her what's happening in today's episode? In today's episode, we are going to be talking about curating art from the Victorian period with women <laughs> of color. Okay. Yeah. Let's Not something you us. think of when you think of the Victorian period. No, but I know that you're going to tell me all about it, which I'm excited. <laughs> Let's go. Hello, and welcome to Remedial Her Story, The Other 50%, the podcast that explores what happened to the women in history class. Now, here's your host, Kelsey Brooke Eckert, and her partner in crime, Brooke Neva Sullivan. All right, so Brooke, I'm really excited. We have Rachel Jarvis on the podcast today. She has her MFA and she has this amazing company called the Herstory Studio, which of course is right up our alley. Duh. Mm. <laughs> and what she does is she takes her talent as a art curator, as, um, you know, with like design and art and all this like amazing skill. And she finds in the archives these amazing portraits of women of color that I love this haven't been seen, you know, and she like makes them more visible. And the stories that people share with her about this work is just really incredible. Like in talking to her, I as a white woman, I didn't really realize how privileged I am to have pieces of art and heirlooms and like, oh, yeah, like family, family hand-me-downs yeah that come down through my family and like yeah artifacts. she's helping people have paintings and things that they can have in their homes to like recognize their okay. culture i love that so anyway, it's just really, really neat. Um, and so she has a website. She has a website. She has an Etsy store. And <gasps> you can Ooh, cool. buy these. They're framed. They're like these gorgeous. Ooh, like gold leaf. Yeah. Kelsey has the website out. It's stunning. Yeah. She has stickers too. Because like. Wow. Who yeah. love a good sticker? Everyone loves stickers. And she does pop-up stores like all over. Little like, little, um, you know, booths at, at. And where is she out of? Where's home base for her? New Jersey. Okay. Cool. Yeah. So very, very cool stuff. Um, so we're going to have her on in just a minute. But it's the Herstory Studio. The Herstory Studio. Very cool. Yep. And I'm so excited. a portion of her proceeds are donated to the Remedial Herstory Project. Get out of here. Yeah. Oh, I love that. So supporting her supports us and it's all good. So wow. I love that. Yep. That's so generous of her too. I know. She's amazing. Doing, um, doing the good work. Doing the good work. And I on that it. on that theme, um, Remedial History is at this like really crucial oh turning moment. I know. People, it, we're like ducks on the water. You, yeah. <laughs> it's very smooth on the surface. You get our podcast. You get all the lesson plans under feet feverishly picking. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, we're at this growth moment where we have amazing resources for teachers. And yep. it's about now we need you know, the funds to really market and spread this and, and get those, these resources to educators. And I'm a little saddened sometimes when people are like, I've never heard of you. I'm like, people, we have been working for, <laughs> for years now trying to get this into your, into your hands. And but also at the same time, we get just as many people that are like, oh my God, I love that. I you're bro, you're Kelsey. Like, yeah. oh my gosh, I've been listening to you forever. And you're like, oh, thanks. Yeah. Wow. That's insane. Yeah. So wanting to have more of those, more of those moments. Yeah. Um, not for us, but 
for these resources, for these tools and the things, you know, the teachers told us at the summer retreat of like, these resources are some of the best social studies resources, not like women's history, not yeah. like, you know, in our niche, but like social studies broadly resources that they found like yeah. that type of praise is irreplaceable. To it me. is. And we've been very grassroots for a long time. And like, it's, you know, one teacher tells four teachers and mm -hmm. those four teachers tell eight teachers and it like, keeps going and it's been great. This year, our focus is really on expansion in multitude, which is going to be really interesting. But our fundraising efforts is a big component of this. Yeah. So we're trying to launch an ambassador program. Um, we have, um, you know, we're trying, our newsletter reaches 12,000 people and we want it to grow way even beyond that. And all of that, all of those efforts require funding and oh, yeah. it's helping us get these resources to people. And then the other thing is like, we have amazing articles, like every period of world history, we've synthesized all the research and books yeah. that's out there for you. And, you know, I see those as like launching points, you know, like I, having written a lot of them, I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, this is only like the tip of the iceberg here. Yeah. I hope you read, you know, the bibliography and pursue those, those sources as well. But that's up there for anybody, you know, yeah. to like learn the history they missed out on and to keep those things up, to keep our website up, like all of that requires funds and support. And right now it's mostly donor support from people like you listening yep. right now. I mean, we do have some grants and mm -hmm. some grant um, foundation funding, but it is our patrons and the people that donate or say, I'd like to give you an in-kind gift of XYZ amount of money, which has been unbelievably kind. Yeah. And people so like Rachel needed. donating portions yes. of their proceeds. You know? I know we have all these good partners, I would say, yep. um, that come along and they're like, I want to support what you're doing. How mm -hmm. do you, in, and our website has a lot of resources for people to figure out how they want to support and what would be most meaningful. Yep. But also, you know, people just reaching out like, I could do this. Would that be useful to you? It's like, yeah, that, yes. that would be great. Yeah. So you've got a couple options if you want to support our work. The easiest one is go to remedialherstory.com slash giving, and you can become a monthly donor. You can make a one-time donation. You can also make an annual donation there, yep. which is kind of neat. So if you're like, I don't want to deal with like monthly, no, <laughs> then make a commitment, you know, every January, right before taxes are done. I know. Right? I'm like, like, tax season. <laughs> yeah. Have you donated at least $500 this year? Yeah. <laughs> Do it. You know, and this is, this is your moment. And, you know, so that's an option. There's also an option to become a fundraiser for us. So if you are like, I personally can't give, but I've got energy and would love to like promote yeah. this through my socials, then awesome. You can do that through the same spot, remedialherstory.com slash giving. Um, and then like Brooke said, if you have something that you want to, a skill or a talent that you want to contribute, like those in-kind donations are unbelievable. Yeah, they're endless. And they, I mean, I think I'll take it back even one step further. Every time, you know, these moments in our culture happen that are really defining, I think like the Roe v. Wade moment mm -hmm. and, and people sit back and they're like, well, what can I do? And and they're not people that want to get into politics or they're not people that want to go protesting. I, mm -hmm. They're like, I don't want to hold a sign. That's not my jam. It's like you could find foundations similar to the Remedial Heartstar Project that are doing work that are helping to educate people mm -hmm. to change the course of history, change what's happening so that people are more informed. So yeah. we make better decisions as we grow. And so I think that's a way you can make an impact without without doing all those grandstanding moments and those things where you feel like you have to really go outside yourself. Mm -hmm. Find what feels meaningful. And I think a lot of people that listen to our podcast are people that maybe aren't teachers mm -hmm. that just want to support making more equitable history so that girls that we used to be get a better history education. Yeah. And boys, 
right? Like, oh my gosh, they are yes. set up for failure if the world they see doesn't include women, you know? Yeah, exactly. We can go to the website and check that out, right? Yeah. Yeah. So let's turn it over. We've got Rachel Jarvis here oh, with us. So excited. With her MFA, which like, I love when we bring art people in because I'm such a like a bring me the primary source textual material. And she's like, pictures, please. <laughs> she's like artisanally crafted by yes. me. Here you go. Yes. Let's get her in here and tell us a little bit about herself. Awesome. My name is Rachel Jarvis. I'm a first-generation Caribbean-American writer, podcast producer, and as of late, a stationary designer as well. Um, I'm an alumna of Fordham and UCLA. Go Rams and go insert UCLA's mascot here. I went to UCLA for grad school, so I wasn't really a part of their um, (laughs) school spirit. (laughs) So I actually don't remember what our mascot was. Uh, Yeah, go Fordham and UCLA. When I'm not writing about cynical book smart black girls, I usually find myself ordering clothes for my dog or as of this year, selling (laughs) antique replicas of women of color and handmade stationery in my Etsy shop called the Herstory Studio. So that's a lot of things that you just plugged. First of all, I had to Google it, but it looks like the UCLA mascot is a bear. Oh, Um, it's a bear? Oh, okay. A Bruin, perhaps? I don't oh. know. Does that sound right? Well, it does go Bruins. Yeah. Ah, that's funny. <laughs> you know, so most people are listening in from their podcast app. Hopefully it's Spotify and they will. Um, so tell them what's the name of your podcast so that people can pop over and listen to that. Oh, sure. So my podcast is an audio drama. It's titled Lady Lucy. And it's about the imagined misadventures of Shakespeare's Dark Lady from the Dark Lady Sonnets. I have been obsessed with the idea of Lucy Negro and Shakespeare's Dark Lady being a dark-skinned woman, not a dark-spirited or dark-haired woman. I did my undergrad thesis on Lady Lucy. I did my grad thesis on Lady Lucy as well. Very, very much obsessed. But then I also had some free time during the global panoramic and I turned it into an audio drama. So it's based off of his Dark Lady sonnets, which is sonnets 127 through 152 specifically, if anyone wants to go read those. They're very good. They're very romantic. Well, some of them are. (laughs) You know, we had talked about this previously and you kind of blew my mind because I studied Shakespeare for, you know, in England and I wasn't aware and you informed me and I love this so much. So if you haven't for the, we have a lot of English teachers who listen in. Mm. And if you haven't focused on this, oh my gosh, what a cool thing to highlight in your classes. Lady mm. Lucy, Shakespeare, what's, what are the sonnets again? Sonnets 127 through 152. So this is the group of sonnets that actually comes right after the fair youth sonnets. So we have Shakespeare who was most likely in love with a young man at the time. So we have bisexual Shakespeare, and then we go into Shakespeare with a Black girlfriend. It's all it's all very fascinating, Shakespeare. <laughs> the Shakespeare you didn't learn in school, you will now exactly. learn in school. I love it. <laughs> okay, well, people will have to go read those. This is amazing. And then, so you also, you also have this amazing shop, the Herstory Studio, and you do... 
really neat work. Some of it is handcrafted. Some of it is prints. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So the Herstory Studio is, right now it's a gift boutique online and at local pop-ups here in the tri-state. I'm based in Jersey and New York. Um, and I sell a very carefully curated collection of antique prints of women of color, some handmade stationery that's inspired by some of these prints, greeting cards, postcards. Honestly, I like to call them modern heirlooms because these are archival quality artwork that exists in a lot of museum archives, you know, basements, sometimes family homes. People are holding on to diasporic artifacts and they're not even aware of it. But I felt like the easiest way for us to get these into our homes and our workspaces and really just into our collective conscience is to turn them into art prints and decorate our places and spaces with them. It's so special. And you've had some really wonderful feedback from people. Like I follow you on social media and the amount of love you get that is like, it's not just like, Ooh, I liked that piece of art. It's like (laughs) this literally transformed my world kind of feedback. (laughs) Like, Like, can you share some of that, those experiences with us? Yeah, actually, thank you for reminding me of that, because sometimes I think I forget that there's a community of people out there who need these prints the way I need them. I remember my first review came in and I was super nervous about it being a one star review because I was a little late to ship the print because I was worried it was going to get creased. And I don't like to roll 16 by 20s because of the structural integrity of the paper, all of these things. But this person ended up leaving a five star review and she said, I'm so excited to have this in my family. I can't wait for my daughters to have this and to pass it on to their children. And I was I was just overcome. I shared it with my mom and I was like, I think, I think we're giving people history to have and to hold in a way that we never had history before. And it's crazy because these things, well, a lot of them exist in the public domain. Sometimes I have to work out some licensing issues, but the art is out there. We just don't get to see it. We don't get to have it with us. And I just think that's so wild because it's not like any of this is made up. It's all real and it's out there and we just need to need to grab hold of it. Yeah, that's so that's so neat. And I like how something that was like potentially a scary business moment like turned into this like amazing yeah. phrase. Oh, man. Oh, love that. So how did you get into this? I mean, obviously, like it's working, it's meaningful, it's needed. But like, how did you start on that? You you have an MFA, like you, you obviously pursued art, you're interested in Shakespeare and these sonnets. So how did you get here? What what put you on that path? I think the shop started the way everything else really starts for me as just a little idea. Sometimes I'm on Pinterest and it might be months or years prior to me actually acting on an idea, but it started as an idea. And I think much like with Lady Lucy, these stories of forgotten black and brown women and hidden histories, they've just been gnawing at me. And I feel like if we don't tell their stories, then someone else is going to tell it and they may not tell it accurately or appropriately. And, you know, seven months ago when I started this, it was, um, it was a rocky time personally, but then also career-wise, professionally, it was rocky. Um, I wasn't really sure what was going on. I had applied to a couple of fellowships and I didn't hear back. And then within a matter of weeks, the writer strike happened. 
Um, now there's been a tentative agreement reached, and I think the actors are still on strike. But it was a very uncertain time, and I was really devastated because I I want to be a storyteller. I want to share these stories. I want to continue contextualizing history, but I had no idea how I was going to do that without being a scab writer, <laughs> yeah. without you know breaking strike rules as a non-union writer. Um, and I think for me, just the visuals, just wanting to see what I haven't seen. Um, there's this overused quote by Toni Morrison. Um, she says that if there's a story that hasn't been written yet and you want to read it, write it. And of course, I'm paraphrasing because I don't think I even quoted her properly there. But the idea that there's a story out there that you want to read, you want to participate in, or you want to have in your life. And if it isn't written, you have to write it. And I couldn't write, but there were still stories that I wanted to see around me. So I figured, why don't I not necessarily create them, but why don't I start by trying to find them? Because it has to exist. It has to exist. I mean, both my parents are Caribbean immigrants. So a lot of our history is oral history. And when someone dies, we lose that history. So I think growing up, I've always felt this sense of like needing to see, to believe. And coming across certain visuals for Lady Lucy really inspired me. I figured if there's one image of a Blackamoor woman out there from the 1600s, maybe there's another. And maybe there's another and maybe there's more. And then you start digging. And when you start digging, the sand starts to fall into the hole. And then, oh my gosh, you just discover so much and it's so exciting. And I'm obsessed. I am really obsessed. <laughs> well, it reminds me a little bit about, you know, you said like seeing is believing and this is something you were looking for and it wasn't there. And not to like step away from your story just a little bit, but a lot of my research is looking at inclusion in schools and how, and one of the kind of niche things that I looked into is just the stuff that teachers put up on walls mm. um, and how that shows who belongs in the space and who doesn't. Um, and it is hard, I think, in history when a lot of the topics surround white men. And I, you know, even. I found that like when I when I actually like I read this study and I paused and I surveyed my room, I went, oh, my God, how many white men are on my walls? You know, like, mm -hmm. like, where are where are the women? You know, like that kind of like mm -hmm. question we ask ourselves. And then, you know, like how many people of color are represented on here? How many? You know, and mm -hmm. I have. I had a lot of students from Puerto Rico, like in my classes, I had a lot of students from, you know, like, who were like you know, adopted from Asia and like, where are those students represented on my wall? Like they're not seeing themselves in my classroom. And so how do I make sure they're, they're represented? They feel like they belong in this space by not like, <laughs> I'm just like yeah. it's a little eerie when I started to look at it. Like, what am I doing with my walls? Here? <laughs> yeah, no, once you're made aware of a lack or just a one-sided historical representation, it gets scary. Suddenly you're walking through the museum and you're like, wow, this is a lie or <laughs> this is a partial truth. Yeah. So, I mean, I think we've touched on this, but is there a particular reason you think like teachers should be bringing, I guess, art in particular into their classes a bit more? And I, I think, you know, you've said something that I is resonating with me as an educator about the importance of 
visuals in proving truth to you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Why else do you think this is important for teachers to be using art in their their work? Yeah, well, I think art and visuals are important because it helps contextualize history. And I've gone to so many different schools growing up. I was in private school, magnet school, boarding school, went to public school for a whole year. <laughs> and then that stopped. We lived in South Florida for a little bit for my dad's job growing up. And we just so happened to be in a private school as the only Black family at the time. Um, Actually, there might have been two other Black families, um, but I remember being the only Black girl in class from sixth grade through eighth grade. And learning history was just very anxiety-inducing, honestly, because whenever something about slavery would come up, I kid you not, students would turn and look at me as if I had the answers for how life was and what picking con what picking cotton was like. And unfortunately, I did not. I mean, my ancestors most likely picked sugarcane instead of cotton, but I still couldn't speak to that experience because it wasn't mine. And I feel like at the time, my teachers weren't contextualizing history accurately. I didn't have any context. I only had the information that they gave us which did not include people that looked like me, which did not include women, which did not include any people with melanin, really. And it was it was scary. But, you know, my mom was also a teacher for a few years. And, you know, coming from up north, I mean, I hate to say it, coming from the New Jersey, New York area, you do have a bit more privilege and a bit more leeway when it comes to learning certain things. And there was a bit more of a cultural melting pot. So I did have that experience. And then in the home, being exposed to more of a global perspective of not only history, but, you know, our present experiences. Um, So I think that's when the seed was planted of, you know, how can I not exist past slavery? How can I not exist in the past in any capacity aside from oppression? How is that possible? Mm -hmm. So I think in middle school, that's when that seed was planted, simply because my teachers just weren't providing the context necessary. Well, and I think you know, that it helps illustrate like a kind of a lack of diversity of Black American experiences. And like, yes, slavery is horrible. It needs to be contextualized. We need to be talking about that in our classes. But also, I think what's really sad is that students, you know, like, (laughs) look at you and are like, so you know about that, right? Right. (laughs) I feel like you should have looked back and been like, what was it like to own people? You know? (laughs) Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Um, But, but, like... I I also think teachers do need to share stories. And I think your art illustrates this really clearly that not all people of color were enslaved. Not all Black people were enslaved. And there is diversity there. And I want to just really quickly plug an episode that we did last um, season with a lawyer from the South who was talking about women... Um, who were business owners who were free Mm -hmm. and living in Louisiana and, you know, crushing life and like really dominating industry Mm -hmm. in their towns as, um, you know, not just domestic workers, like, you know, owning hotels and as laundresses and I guess laundresses, a domestic worker, but that's what came to (laughs) mind. great episode. And I, if you, if you're like, how, but how do you do that? I think that one might Mm -hmm. help teachers Get, have examples of um, yeah. other things that women did other than being enslaved, you know, in the yeah. 
So no, I think that's so important. And I, to your point, her, her episode, I think was really challenging for me because mm-hmm. I didn't have a visual for what these powerhouse mm-hmm. women looked like and the mm-hmm. art that you've shown me and that's up in your studio that people can purchase and put in their classrooms. Like mm-hmm. that's the visual. This is what they looked like. This is how they dressed. And yeah, a lot of cases, ah. like you know, it's just, it's really neat. Yeah. And I'm so excited because you and I were actually talking about the textbook, the remedial history project um, online textbook. And I was going through, I've only been able to go through the um, Western America, like the United States, Western United States, Wild West section. But it reminds me of some research I was doing for a pilot I wrote in grad school about the women of the Wild West, um, all historically accurate. We have stagecoach Mary, we have Chicana um, cowgirls. We have indigenous women who you know, are living off the land. We have communities. We are adding to the narrative, the historical narrative of the United States. And there are images of these women. You can see an image of a Chicana cowgirl in her, in her getup, in her, her boots and her little vest. Like she was a cowgirl. And I was shocked when I saw this picture because I was like, I've never seen this before. Is yeah. this even real? And it is. And stagecoach Mary, seeing her with her dog and her shotgun, that's basically me. <laughs> well, maybe not the gun, but my dog. And if we were, you know, postal workers <laughs> on, you know, the Pony Express and mailing or sending mail to people. And she was the first star route carrier for the United States Postal Service. And this is all real. And, and we don't know this and it doesn't really resonate with us until maybe we see a picture of it. Sometimes seeing really is believing, unfortunately. I think you're right. I think people are convinced when they see the art. And I think the thing that's really impressive about your studio is that this is old art that you're, you're you know, this isn't like, you're like, let's paint black people into the history. It's like, no, 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 they were in the history that you've talked about, you know? So I think that is even just more impressive about what you're doing is you're reclaiming these pieces of art for people. I try to downplay it a lot though, because it is out there and all I'm doing is just pulling it out. Like I'm really not painting anything new. I'm not painting. I took one paint class in undergrad and that doesn't make me a painter. I cannot paint classically. I'm finding these pieces and doing my best to confirm with the research that I have and the research available, the information available to us online to confirm that these are in fact artifacts that we can use and touchstones in the past that we can look to. So if there was a piece of art or a topic that, you know, I feel like you've touched on a lot of different things here from, you know, from Shakespeare to the, you know, cowgirls out West. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So we're we're all over the place in time, but if there's one where you're like, God, if I could get teachers to teach this topic, what, or, or idea or understanding, what would that be for you? The topic I pick, I'd have to say the idea that history really is written by the victors, not those who come in last, um, but that we must always hold space for those who come in last. The idea of the loser is something we should always be thinking about because almost every perspective matters, especially when you're teaching history, because you will have multiple perspectives in a classroom, regardless of the grade or age of the students. And right now I'm thinking about a piece um, that I have in the shop. It's actually 
it's the best selling print right now. And I sell it in three sizes. Um, custom sizing is available, but it takes me longer to ship because I don't like to roll the pieces, as I mentioned earlier. But this piece is called um, Portrait of a Young Caribbean Woman. It's by an unknown artist. For a while, it was attributed to a painter by the name of Jean-Étienne Lyotard. Um, it's 17th century. And whenever I take it to pop-ups and I have it on display or I'm selling like one framed version of it, there's usually a couple people who stop by and they tell me, have you ever seen Vermeer's Girl with a Pearl Earring? And I'm like, of course. They're like, this looks just like that. Is this like an abstract version? Is this like an, a revisionist history version of Girl with a Pearl Earring? And, you know, it's something I'd never considered before, but I suppose it does kind of look like a play on Girl with a Pearl Earring, but with a Black woman. But I often end up telling people the fun fact that Vermeer's Girl with a Pearl Earring didn't actually exist. She was a figment of his imagination, whereas this Caribbean woman did exist. And researchers find it so fascinating that a woman with her skin tone, honestly, if we're just being, we're just calling a spade a spade, a woman with her skin tone in your 17th century Europe, having commissioned a piece of herself, a portrait of herself, is just odd. It's really strange. But I think that's what makes it striking, too, because she and really did. is that did. known that she commissioned it? Or, like, was it a family member that commissioned it? Well, I'm re well, I really go off of what the curators say. So yeah. right now, this is at the St. Louis Museum of Art. What the curators are saying is that she probably commissioned it for herself or she was walking down the street and an artist spotted her and thought, why don't I paint her? Um, and it's actually pastel. I want to say on paper, it's pastel on paper. I do have to double check, but it's a gorgeous piece. And she is posed in a very similar manner to girl with a pearl earring. So I think people, people like to see, they like to draw similarities with that. And I think it's important to teach both and to show students both images because when we just show one again we're only getting a one-sided view of history and they're from around the same time period so I don't see why not you know I don't see why we can't have both of them in the art history textbooks well and this is such a you know since everyone can't see the picture it is a oh, yeah. beautiful I mean she's stunning I I was noticing like the um, I don't even know. It looks like gold, like right on her, her cheekbones, just beautiful. Um, I don't know, tone almost. She does it. She's wearing a, a per, like, it looks like maybe pearl necklace, but it could, yeah. be, could be any other, I don't know. Yeah. And her head wrap, I think is what really gives it away for researchers. Um, they say, you know, women at the time, of course, were not wearing head wraps like that, um, in Europe, but women in the Caribbean were, and it's possible that she journeyed from the Caribbean, which would have been a quite the trek, honestly, journeyed from the Caribbean to the Netherlands and had this piece painted. I just think that's fascinating and extraordinary because when you contextualize history like that, you start to ask questions like, what was she even doing there? Yeah. Why did she leave? Where was she going? Who else did she know? And all of these questions start to unfold. And teachers are storytellers in the same way that, you know, writers are storytellers. And when sharing this with the next generation, you're just opening a world of possibility and giving students hope sometimes. And I think in middle school, if I had seen a piece like this, it would have given me some hope. Yeah. And to the point, like, 
this was painted in, I don't know, late 18th century is what it says. Late 18th century, not 19th century. Dates are always so hard to memorize. Um, I have, I'm looking at the website, but like that's so long ago. And it, I mean, the fact that it was commissioned by her, I, I, I questioned whether she commissioned it only because she's so young. So to like have the money to afford this, I'm, you know, it's just interesting to me. Yeah, I mean, to have it on your wall and at least represent her is amazing. But then to ask, you know, like ask questions about this girl, like, like you said, how did she do this? How did she get there? Why is she there? What? And then I think even more importantly, she has this great look on her face. Like she's looking at that artist and I don't know what she's thinking, but it would be cool to ask you, what do you think she's thinking? (laughs) Honestly, what do you think is going through her mind? Where do you think she's headed? Why is she dressed this way today? You know, all of these questions are just glorious questions to ask. And for the artsy students, oh, we would love to just go on and on about her entire day how she just left her mother's home and she's going to the market to pick up this and that. Oh, it would have been so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I mean, she's so beautifully painted too. I think um, this also just sort of speaks to this, you know, this Swiss painter. Um, yeah. Like really honoring her story, which I think is a different narrative than we hear often in class. Um so I think, I don't know, it's just what a beautiful piece. And I, I love that that one sells a lot in your store because I can see why it resonates. It's super popular. This, along with the portrait of Fanny Eaton, are the most popular prints right now. I, I mean, I feel like we've illustrated, like, just asking these questions about, about it. Is there anything else you would do with the painting if you were teaching a lesson to, to students or building an activity around it with your... MFA training that I don't have and I'm so envious of? (laughs) Well, I'm always thinking about stories. I'm always thinking about um, world building and characters inhabiting worlds. And I'm always also thinking about diaspora and how diaspora is a thing, nuance is a thing, and blackness and brownness is nuanced and diasporic. And if we could you know, if this were an activity, other late 18th century pastel or oil paintings of the time of Black and brown people, can we or are we able to identify where in the world they might be from? Because I think a lot of the times we think of Blackness and we think African-American only, and that there's only one version of Black history or Brown history or Indigenous history when there is a spectrum of our histories. And we exist all over the world, which is another thing that kind of blows people's mind. Where did you say this painting came from? Where did, you know, where was Isabella by Simon Maris painted? What was she doing over there? Why is she in the Netherlands? I think, I think about Black girls being in the Netherlands often because that's something that blows my mind. And seeing paintings of Black women in the Netherlands blows my mind because I was not exposed to that. So I'm always thinking (laughs) the Netherlands. But comparing late 18th century portraits with this one I think would help help drive home the idea that there is a spectrum of experience and it's not just people of color as a monolith but peoples of color and the colors vary 
Oh my gosh, I feel like we should end right there. That's so fabulous. <laughs> Rachel, thank you so much for being on our podcast today. I'm so excited for people to go check out the Herstory Studio to listen to your um podcast lady about Lady Lucy. And um I I'm just so excited to share this with our audience. Thank you for having me, Kelsey. And thank you for the work that you're doing with Remedial History Project, because it's all so important and it's all adding to the cause. You know, we're not rewriting history per se. We're just writing history accurately, or (laughs) dare I say, the way it was supposed to be written the first time, you know, with everyone's input. Um, So yeah, you inspire me with RHP. So thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts to bring more voices to the conversation. We really appreciate that effort. Until next time.